Pastor David, go ahead with your message, sir. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be with you again this morning. I'd like to speak to you this morning about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm entitling my sermon to you this morning, The Return of the Warrior King. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised to return to earth again someday to judge the earth and establish his glorious kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And as we look at the prophetic signs in Scripture, we believe that that could happen very, very soon. In Revelation chapter 19, in verses 11 through 14, Jesus revealed this event to the Apostle John. And there we read, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What a marvelous thing to know that our God is the omnipotent sovereign over all things. And therefore he can accomplish all that he has decreed, all that he has revealed to us in his word. He has no rival. Nothing can thwart his predetermined plan to glorify himself. All that he has promised will come true. When we examine the second coming of Christ, we witness his wrath and his mercy, his vengeance and his love, as well as his judgment and his grace. And what a comfort it is to know that in the miracle of divine providence, God orchestrates every contingency in the universe to ultimately accomplish his plan to bring glory to himself. This includes such things as the redemption of sinners, the ultimate defeat of Satan, the fulfillment of his covenant promises to his chosen nation of Israel, and the establishment of his messianic kingdom on earth which will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. After he has translated his church into heaven at the rapture, he will set into motion the final pre-kingdom judgments that culminate in his physical return. He is coming again, dear friends, not to seek and to save sinners, but to judge them, and to bring eternal blessing to the redeemed. Allow your mind to visualize for a moment the Lord Jesus Christ descending to earth in his pre-incarnate glory, attended by the heavenly host of his holy angels and his glorified saints. In his first coming, the world saw his love, his mercy, and grace. But in his second coming, they will see his justice, wrath, and his vengeance. The world will behold our holy God, Holiness being the all-encompassing attribute of God, portraying His utter transcendence, His consummate perfection and eternal glory. Now today, the world mocks His holiness, but a day is coming when they will beg to die because of it, but even death will escape them. In this text, we see the climax of human history, 
the climax of the Christian's hope, the fulfillment and vindication of every saint down through redemptive history, with unimaginable majesty and uncontested regal authority as both judge and warrior, the Messiah, the warrior king, the king of kings and lord of lords, physically returns to earth to exercise his judicial power and destroy the remaining Christ-haters on earth who have survived the pre-kingdom judgments of the tribulation. When Christ returns, man's long rebellion against God will be over. The messianic kingdom of Old Testament prophecy, long anticipated by both Jews and Christians, will finally be established on earth for a thousand years, leading to the eternal and universal judgment of both the living and the dead. O child of God, please hear this. A day is coming when we will behold the triumph of our Savior and King. The day when all the weeping will stop, as the Lord promised in Revelation 5 and verse 5, For behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. In the first ten verses of Revelation 19, the Lord revealed to John the coming explosion of heaven's praise in anticipation of the Lord's glorious return to earth. And here, in verses 11 through 21, the Lord describes the actual event of the king's return for his bridal church. And in verses 11 through 21, there are four themes concerning the warrior king that emerge. His arrival, his army, his authority, and his attack. And today, I'd like to talk with you just for a few minutes about the first two, his arrival and his army. And the next time I speak with you, I'll talk about his authority and his attack. So, what about his arrival? In verse 11 we read, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. What an amazing scene to see the spiritual world beyond the veil of our limited sight. Think about it. John is one of a selected few that has ever witnessed heaven being opened. Prior to this, he witnessed mighty angels of judgment in chapter 10 and 14 and chapter 18. They were coming down out of heaven. But then in chapter 19, he sees heaven opened, and he beholds the glory of God on a white horse, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 19, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. But now he sees the reality of those words in verse 11, where Jesus is seen symbolically descending on a white horse. What a stark contrast to his first coming when the king of kings rode upon a donkey, a beast of burden, when he came to bear the burden of our sins. But now he symbolically rides a magnificent mount, a steed of splendor. The king is now riding on a glorious horse like a conquering general would do in Rome in some majestic processional of triumph. Dear friend, at his first coming, he sat upon a humble donkey as he rode to a cross. But when he returns, he will sit upon a white horse as he rides toward a throne in ultimate triumph over his enemies. Now, biblically, a white horse is a symbol of triumph, of uncontested authority. 
And notice what we read about the writer. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Can there be a more perfect title for the king? A more fitting description of the person and the work of our Savior? I think not. First, John learns that he who sat upon the white horse is called Faithful and True. Faithful is a term that carries the force of being totally trustworthy, absolutely dependable. Oh, dear Christian, this is our faithful Savior, our faithful King who will sit upon the steed of final triumph. He is absolutely trustworthy. All that He has decreed in eternity past will come to pass. As we read in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. But will you notice He is also true. This carries the sense of real or genuine. Jesus is the very essence of truth. He said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So here the Lord describes himself as the trustworthy essence of truth. Earlier in chapter 3 and verse 14, he is described as the faithful and true witness. Notice also that he comes in righteousness. He judges and wages war. Here we see both the motive and the mission of his return. He's coming to judge and to conquer. The forces of the beast, that is the Antichrist, must be vanquished and all who have opposed him must be punished. He comes as both the judge and executioner of those who have repeatedly and deliberately spurned all of the warnings and ignored all the invitations to repent that have dominated the prior seven years of tribulation. In verse 12, we are given further description of the warrior king. We read that his eyes are a flame of fire. This symbolism was used earlier in chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 18. It speaks of the fierceness of his wrath against his enemies, the penetrating eyes of his divine omniscience that, like a laser, burn through every barricade of rebellion and every fortress of deceit to search and destroy hardened sinners. Here we are reminded of what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Notice also that upon his head are many diadems. This refers to a crown of royalty, a ruler's crown, emblematic of a king's authority. It was an ancient custom for a conquering king to place his foot upon the neck of a vanquished king and place his crown upon his head, illustrating the utter subjugation of his foe and the new transfer of power. We witness this, for example, in Second Samuel chapter 12. After the defeat of the Ammonites in verse 30, we read that David took the crown of their king from his head, and it goes on to say that it was placed on David's head. In Revelation 12 and verse 3, we read that the dragon had a diadem of each of his seven heads, and the beast had one on each of his ten horns, in chapter 13 and verse 1. But the king of kings will have many more upon his head. Now, the greater son of David, the warrior king, subdues all of the kings of the world, and in effect places their crowns upon his head. 
the very head that once wore a crown of thorns. But John sees something else that identifies this writer. In verse 12, we read that he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. It is futile to speculate upon the name because he alone knows what it is and what it means. Beloved, here we are reminded of the ineffable and indescribable nature of our Savior King. Perhaps the Lord will reveal this name to us in glory someday. Notice also John sees that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is the robe in the original language that refers to the cloak worn by a horseman, especially the cloak of a Roman general. This has nothing nothing to do with the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. The context has nothing to do with his work of atonement or of redemption. The context is that of war. This is a reference to the blood of his enemies. In fact, the imagery is drawn from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. And here the imagery speaks of the slaughter of Armageddon, when the lion of the tribe of Judah wreaks vengeance on his enemies. Then the scene of his arrival closes with yet another mention of the warrior Messiah's name. In verse 13 we read, And his name is called the Word of God. The inspired apostle also recorded this concept in his gospel, referring to Christ Jesus as the Logos, the Word, in John 1, 1 and verse 14. Now, here again, he learns afresh that his name is called the Word of God. This speaks of the revelation of the purposes of God that finds its full expression in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there can be no dispute about the identity of this writer. He is called faithful and true, and in verse 12, in the transcendence of infinite holiness and the boundless mystery of deity, he speaks of a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. In verse 13, he's called the Word of God, and later in verse 16, his name is written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Beloved, this is the Christ who died in our place, the one who saved us by his grace, and the one who is coming again someday in power and great glory. I think of Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, Jesus is coming again. He described his arrival as well in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 31. There we read, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
So John speaks first of the warrior king's arrival, and then secondly, of his army. Notice in verse 14, he says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Beloved, these troops refer to the army of the saints, you and me, the regiment of the redeemed, consistent with chapter 17 and verse 14, where we read, Those who are with the King of kings and the Lord of lords are called the chosen and faithful. This is further confirmed by their attire. They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The same portrayal is used in chapter 19, verses 7 through 8, to describe the Lamb's bride. Now, prior to this, the saints will be snatched away from this earth in the rapture, and then later we will accompany our commander when he returns. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3 and verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I cannot fathom what a marvelous day that will be when we will descend with the Lord to watch him conquer the earth. Now some might ask, why is Jesus waiting so long? The scoffers ask, where is the sign of his coming? But what escapes them is that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter tells us in Second Peter 3 and verse 8, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. My friends, what appears to be a delay is God's perfect timing. In fact, this delay is an opportunity for him to manifest his long-suffering love towards sinners, perhaps like you. May I challenge you this morning. The storm clouds are gathering, and I pray that you have asked Jesus to save you, that your trust is in him, because he alone is your only hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Father, may you grant mercy upon those who do not know you, and may they be saved today. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.